Okay, hi everyone. This is a special quick update, Alpha Bunga Bunga, catching up on Brazil's election. Uh, we last discussed Brazil with Sabrina Fernandes about a month ago in an episode called Brazil's Ultra Politics. We're not going to recap what was said there. I'd encourage you to check that out because a lot of that still remains relevant. What we do want to do here is catch up on the latest news and really also try to draw out some prognoses of what Bolsonaro's rule might look like. So I'm going to now hand over to Phil, who's going to kind of chair this, and uh, it's going to be me, uh, Alex Hochuli, and Ben Fogel kind of discussing. Thanks, Alex. So just before we begin um, talking through it, can you, so I know Ben is traveling, but you're still in Sao Paulo, Alex. Can you just put us in the picture as to uh, what the mood is like in the city where you live, the national media? How do things feel on the ground in the last couple of days? I mean, in the context of very stark polarization, you can imagine that there is elation from the hardcore Bolsonaro supporters um, people who would have voted for him, but really just on a vague notion that he might change things, are feeling like, well, let's let's see how this goes. Let's give him a shot. Uh, and then the whole camp who are you know anti-fascist or you know voted against him because they are repulsed by him. You can imagine how um, desperately sad we all are um, that this has come to pass, and it feels a little bit like. The past five years of Brazilian crisis and turbulence has been leading up to this point, and yet we never thought it would kind of that it would get this bad. So both of you have been writing widely for um, various national, international media. Um, Alex, you've had pieces in Baffler and Jacobin, um, NBC, and Ben, you've been written, you've been writing for um, South African Press as well as the British Independent bringing people up to date with what's happening, as well as Jacobin on anti-corruption. So um, we want to talk through a few of the themes that have come through in the um, in those pieces that you've been writing. The first thing is, um, so there's a lot of talk about the wave, right, the kind of global wave of far right or radical right populist authoritarianism sweeping the planet. And Bolsonaro's victory in the world's fourth largest democracy um, obviously seems to make that more real. The danger is that in talking of a wave that you lose any sense, well, you make it sound perhaps um, stronger and more overwhelming than it is. There's always the danger of fatalism, but also that it makes it sounds very undifferentiated and makes everyone sound as if they're the same phenomenon. So could you maybe both talk us through a bit what's specific about Bolsonaro and Brazil compared to other places? I think in the case of Brazil, it's different from a number of other cases, like, say, uh, Turkey, or even contemporary Italy, in that uh, this is really a reaction to the left. There was a large social democratic party, which there still is, the Workers' Party that kept on winning elections. There's a reasonably strong organized trade union movement. There's a reasonably big radical left, and there's a reasonably big social, uh, section of social movements which actually win things. So in comparison to, say, uh, Italy, where there's not much of a left you can identify at all, this is a specific election promise to destroy the left. And Bolsonaro is coming, uh, drawing on elements of the old authoritarian ideology of Latin American uh, military dictatorships and the war against uh, communism and the left in the 60s and 70s, uh, updating it with a uh, 
healthy or very unhealthy dose of social media driven uh, toxin and uh, a number of other themes reported from things like uh, the American old right, like cultural Marxism. But in reality, it's the crucial defining feature of Bolsonaro politics is not just his racism, not just his uh, love of violence, not just his sexism, it's his fact that he's coming there to destroy the left. And that's basically his platform. Yeah, and to add another thing to that, and to really put a, to really nail this, repeat after me, Bolsonaro is not the tropical Trump. He's not the Trump of the tropics. So much so that I tried to get this thing going that people were calling him the Samba Trump, uh, just to kind of ridicule that whole notion. Uh, it's really frustrating to keep reading this in the media. And I know why a lot of international media does it because everybody knows Trump and they go, well, this is another guy who's just like him. And he really isn't just like him. As Ben already said, he, uh, Bolsonaro is in the, is much more related to this history of right-wing military authoritarianism in Latin America, which isn't the case with Trump. And Bolsonaro's stated aim really is to crush the left. And it's a form of, as we discussed in the last episode, ultra-politics, which is distinguishable from Trump, who doesn't operate at all in the same manner. Put this way, like, if you really want to understand like, what Bolsonaro is saying, and this is where he kind of compares to Duterte, is that uh, Brazil is in the midst of a sort of representative crisis in which uh, people have lost faith, or if they had faith to begin with, in uh, democracy, the political class is completely discredited uh, to a large degree because of its involvement in corruption, which has been weaponized against the left as well, and the security situation is quite bad. Uh, 64,000 Brazilians were murdered last year. Uh, there's basically a whole bunch of things that can call the crisis in Brazil. And what Bolsonaro is saying is basically we can shoot away through all of these problems. Give me a few years and a few bullets and a few dead bodies and everything will be some sort of like perfect, happy family values utopia uh, where the left will be a thing of the past, crime won't exist and everyone will be armed and dangerous. So just to nail this point about populism, uh, Bolsonaro I don't think can be really termed a populist. I mean, the only way in which he is a populist, I guess, is talking about the law, the kind of law and order issues. But even that is is tenuous. Um, he doesn't really, and and the fact that he's a sort of anti-corruption figure, so he speaks against the old corrupt elite. But this is really a form of the top clamping down on the bottom uh, of society. It doesn't really have the include the, the the inclusionary or the faux inclusionary aspects that populism traditionally has. So if we're going to compare Bolsonaro, for example, to right wing European populists, people like uh, Marine Le Pen, um, you know that these are these are forces in Europe which, in some ways, are are politicizing. Uh, they are a way of challenging post political technocracy that rules in Europe, and. You know, and, and they're they're nationalist against the EU technocracy. Uh, they tend to be kind of exclusionary and xenophobic. But all that said, they still aim at somehow driving a wedge and politicizing society. Bolsonaro represents, in some ways, the opposite. It's a way of getting rid of politics. We, you know, all of the political establishment, all those structures, representative parties, that's all a mess. That doesn't work. We're going to wash that all away. We're going to hygienize society. Uh, we're not going to have any more discussions anymore. We're not going to have any more debates. Um, we're not going to have all this complaining from the left. Oh, I'm a victim. Yeah, we're going to just shoot you all down. And that's a very stark difference. And I think it's really important to to restate that. That's really useful um, and important. So the next question and the big one, I suppose, is um, 
how far Bolsonaro is a fascist or whether he represents fascism. And both of you have made the case in the publications you've written over the last week or so that he is a fascist. So can you explain to us um, what you mean by the fact he's a fascist and how that's different from, again, how that's different from other radical right, far right figures that we see on the international scene today? Well, um, as I said before, it's really like he's advocating a sort of civil war-like violence against the left as what politics should be, which what distinguishes him as fascism for me. I think it's uh, as opposed to other forms of authoritarianism, and don't get me wrong, the primary victims of Bolsonaro's rule will be indigenous people, black people, uh, gay people, people in the peripheries of cities. But the overwhelming thing is that the big uh, bourgeoisie in Brazil uh, the sort of lower middle class and upper middle class uh, and a degree of other forms of state institutions are backing Bolsonaro against the left, which is sort of the classical thing of fascism. And I think one of the things that makes Bolsonaro so dangerous, and I was talking to some friends the other day, is the degree of elite unity behind him. Because like usually the big different uh, factions of capital in Brazil, like agri-business agri and like, you know, other industries. Finance, yeah, are not always seeing eye to eye. But in this case, every major section of capital is behind Bolsonaro. A large section of the judiciary is. Uh, as the news today is that Sergio Moro, who is the crusader hero judge of Lava Jato, the anti-corruption investigation, is being uh, touted as either the Minister of Justice or Supreme Court pick, uh, which will basically be the judiciary or the um, rubber stamping uh, Bolsonaro under the guise we could control him with our good people there. And Moro is supposedly some sort of liberal. Uh, as well as, very crucially for Brazil and Latin America, the military. Uh, there are factions within the military which are more actively backing Bolsonaro, as we spoke before in the last podcast. But at the very least, the leadership of the military seems was pretty much indicating they wanted him to win. They were saying, we don't really want a Pete victory, and uh, we, we're happy with this result. So in essence, you have basically the entire Brazilian elite rallied behind Bolsonaro. So even if he's a he, which, an idiot politically in Congress, which he might just be, and I, I think his track record shows he's no great political mind and his party is full of like jokers and uh, all sorts of awful uh, scum that have surfaced. Um, and there's a lot of sort of brokering with the corrupt Brazilian political class you'll need to do to rule. Um, he has the backing of the elite. And even more so, he's actually just today uh, verified that he will adhere to the austerity package passed by Brazil's most unpopular president ever, which is Michel Temer, who a large part of this anti-systemic energy was rejection of him. So in es essence, you have economic uh, you know, uh, stability between this horrible austerity package passed through a undemocratic president and the supposedly democratic mandate of Bolsonaro. So it's basically, we're going to let him deal with all the problems. And we have a unified Brazilian elite, which is something I don't think anybody who has been elected in Brazil has had this much of a, a consensus behind them. I, I mean, I guess the, the question then is, does this still qualify as fascism? I mean, Bolsonaro very much is a way for the elite to resolve the fact that they themselves, and certainly the political establishment, have been unable to resolve Brazil's crisis. They've made it worse. You know, they pushed through the impeachment, which was already a, a break with democratic norms. So they, they impeached Dilma Rousseff in 2016. 
and then found that things got worse. That they they did the big neoliberal sell off, but the economy didn't really rebound. Society got more chaotic. They haven't really able to rally any forces to them. They have no basis for legitimacy. So you, as well as this legitimacy crisis, you're getting a, a growing kind of governability crisis, and so they've opted for the strongman option. I guess the argument that it's not fascism is that, you know, fascism really needs a very strong organized working class to be smashed. And Brazil, although, you know, it has active trade unions and an active left and social movements, we're not talking about, you know, 1920s, 1930s Europe. So I guess that would be the argument against fascism that that he might just be a standard authoritarian. And I, I'm, you know, I'm willing to take that criticism that that maybe he isn't a, a fascist, that maybe he's a proto-fascist, that it's a fascism in development, or that maybe Bolsonaro himself is a fascist, but that it won't be a fascist form of rule, not yet anyway. So that's really um, useful. So I want to just before we move on to talk about what possible scenarios might look like in the next couple of years for Brazilian politics, just to maybe sum up some of what we've been talking about so far. So on the one hand, what would seem to be part of this fascist, this kind of, if he is a fascist, this would seem to be it, strongman, the um, elite-led degradation of Brazilian democracy, democratic institutions, the open crass worship of violence, and the expected reliance on Paris state militias um, to unleash a tremendous wave of violence against the marginalized and excluded and um, the lower classes, working classes of Brazil. So all of that would seem to be the case. On the other hand, um, as Alex, as you've suggested, there's the risk, I suppose, of elevating um, the role of the PT in the last few years, because the mildest form of um, the mildest form of social democracy rather than um, a real kind of organized fundamental threat to private property. The other thing that seems to be lacking for it to be fascism, and I think this is important and would like to hear what you both have to say about it, is um, there's strongman rule and all the kind of crassness that's um, part of the new authoritarian model. But there doesn't seem to be a Führer principe in the sense of a active cultivation of a the individual will of an individual leader who's elevated above um, above the rest of the nation and also very importantly he's gone for ultra he's gone for ultra neoliberalism he's got a chicago boy on team and he's explicitly broken with his old model of corporatist state-led national development and that seems to me to be important as well could you both talk a little bit about that I mean, I just want to say on the national development question, it's like it's less that I think he was a believer in national development. I think he just took he just didn't really care about economics. So he just took his uh, his lead from whoever party he had been drifting in and who he had been around, because this is a guy who went through like nine different political parties, spent most of his time in the PP, which is the party of Paulo Malufi, who is like the archetypical corrupt politician in Brazil and who's like a creature of dictatorship. Um, but I think like they actually is this weird cultist strongman thing going because like, what do they call him in Brazil? They call him Umito, the legend. It's like this daddy. They want him to mm. be like this uh, figure above the people who will, through his iron will and his uh, gun figures, will shoot his way into uh, Brazil's future. And uh, it's like, honestly, the degree, although I'm not in Brazil currently, 
But I think I've been actually quite surprised by the degree of like the cultish worship of Bolsonaro. Like anybody who has un- had the misfortune to be exposed to the pure toxin, which are Bolsonaro WhatsApp groups, which have been a big driving force behind this campaign, will know like some of the absurdities that people like really think about him. Like it's like this whole thing of like these reggae songs, these funk songs, all of these songs about Bolsonaro, how great he is. It's really something which goes a little bit beyond just being like some sort of authoritarian. And it's quite odd because he's not exactly that charismatic. I mean, I I think this, let me just jump in on this as well, because there is a Bolsonaro which exists on the symbolic plane, which has very little to do with the real Bolsonaro, right? He's held, Ben is right, you know, he's held up as the legend. Uh, He's a guy who's going to come in and clean stuff up in really hardcore Bolsonaro groups, not even that hardcore Bolsonaro, pro-Bolsonaro groups. Any criticism of him or any questions about him are shut down immediately, like, shut up, the mito's going to resolve all this, you know, like, what are you, what are you going to be, are you going to be a little whiny leftist? Shut up, you know, like, that is really the, the, the kind of level of the discourse he himself, um, just, he himself is like this kind of pathetic you know he he's got a bit of a lisp he's kind of um he's not especially dynamic uh he isn't a particularly forceful figure there's videos of him doing push-ups with like military recruits and he can't even do like a fucking push-up like he's a bit of a pussy and it's funny because you know you think oh well then he can't be really the strongman figure but it's important to recall that even someone like hitler was you know hardly the aryan figure that he worshipped um he was and this he was little weird Austrian artist guy who's like come in, you know, with a bit Semitic features even. Uh, so you know, like the the symbolic uh, Führer does not need to correspond directly at all to the real individual politician. So what I wanted, so I mean, it's useful to hear this, and it's um, enlightening and important, I think, for to help people understand. Um, all of this and to help kind of build up a fuller picture. I suppose the difference, though, that I was getting at, I suppose, was I can accept, you know, the kind of um, the cultural kind of noise, the WhatsApp groups, um, the social media following, um, and the way this kind of has helped to build up a image that might be very distinct from the individual. But I suppose with Fjord of Principe, what I meant was more a kind of more of a political theory of which is based on individual discretion and will of a leader which is, who's explicitly um, non-democratic. The other thing is, so just to clarify, but the other thing is also we, uh, just to talk about the economic liberalism. So tell us about um, Geddes, his um, Chicago boy who's on team and what we might expect to happen there. Well, so, I mean, just on the on the Fuhrer principle, just to deal with that really quickly, I think you're right that it hasn't quite reached that level yet. Um, despite his fan base, as we've discussed, you know, kind of idolizing him, it isn't that clear, undemocratic, anti-democratic principle. Um, but th- I think that's something that we'll have to see. Again, this is if the case for it being fascism is that it's a fascism in development or that has a capacity to become fascist, but maybe it needs some pieces to align. On the economic liberalism point, I mean, I think that the corporatist model of fascism in the interwar years was a kind of a conjunctural factor. It was not an essential factor of fascism. And it's something that which uh, neo-fascism in the 21st century could dispense with. In fact, I think that kind of an extreme form of neoliberalism allows for a much greater degree of class domination than does uh, corporatism. Because corporatism still at least binds the working class into a block which is incorporated into the state. With neoliberalism, it's just all these free, precaritized individuals floating about competing with one another. So I guess that is the the, the kind of character of, of the 
political economic form of rule that Bolsonaro pretends to implement. His guy, Paulo Gedges, is a Chicago boy. Even within lots of University of Chicago academics have written an open letter kind of distancing themselves from him because they don't want to be associated with him. He's seen as pretty extreme even within the University of Chicago's economics department. Um, he's said, I think, just recently reiterated the fact that we're going to get rid of any the social democratic form of rule, which is kind of ridiculous because, um, you know, Nepete was only only halfway successful in bringing in some form of social democracy into Brazil. Um, on the other hand, Paulo Guedes himself is a really cantankerous figure who's threatened like, oh, no, I'm, I'm fucking out of here after uh, by March, by, you know, by two months into the presidency. Like, if I'm not getting what I want, I'm out. So it's going to be pretty conflictual. I think one thing that's going to be interesting to see is that the markets who have supported Bolsonaro demand pension reform. That is the one big reform that President Temer did not manage to see through. Pension reform pisses a lot of people off. It is very broad-based in who it hits. And even your 50-year-old civil servant or whoever, like who's quite conservative in their disposition, is going to be out on the streets protesting when they get their pension taken away. And so that's going to be very difficult to pass. And it's going to be interesting to see whether Bolsonaro sides with his uh, neoliberal backers and risks becoming very unpopular or uh, shies away from that and then loses the backing of the financial elite. And that's going to be uh, the first big kind of challenge for Bolsonaro. Um, there's a second factor to this uh, neoliberal issue in Bolsonaro is that it's the military. So uh, Guedes, uh, whose uh, policy really amounts to privatize everything, but does that include strategic assets, defense companies that are owned by the state? Does that include uh, Petrobras, the state oil company? And that is a recipe for confrontation because um, – while the military has become more neoliberalized in the last 20 years or so, it still believes firmly in protecting the strategic assets of the Brazilian nation. And that sort of confrontation um, might see some uh, leeway given uh, towards the military uh, rather than uh, his economic advisor or even his economic advisor's sideline because Bolsonaro at the end of the day will answer to the military above any economist. So I don't think I can agree with you, Alex, about um, that fascism can be coherent without a notion of a state-guided corporate vision of society and state interaction. But, but that's I, a discussion well, for another time. It, it is state-guided. I mean, it, neoliberalism is always very state-guided. You know, it's a it's a state intervention to defend property and to you know sure, but it doesn't. But the, the point, but the point about the corporate kind of classical kind of so this fascist vision is that it's explicitly conscious about state leadership in a way rather than being kind of um, suppressed or avoided in the neoliberal one but i think it's something we should talk about more what i want to do now is i want to talk through possible scenarios and maybe what we do is if we talk about three possible scenarios so what a what the best possible scenario for bolsonaro looks like what would the successful bolsonaro regime look like what the failed Bolsonaro regime would look like, and if there's some kind of midway point. The other thing I would like you guys maybe to mention is also the um, possibility of a military intervention in Venezuela um, and whether or not that might factor in to some attempt to rescue the Bolsonaro project if it begins to falter, because apparently it's already been said by a Colombian official has announced that they would welcome Um, or be supportive of some kind of Brazilian military intervention in Venezuela, which, as everybody knows, is um, basically disintegrating and borders Brazil. So if you could talk through those three scenarios, what a success for Bolsonaro would look like, what a failure for Bolsonaro would look like, and if there is some kind of stable midway point between the two. I'm going to 
hand this to Alex, but I want to basically uh, put a framing question for all of this. Uh, two framing questions, because I think Alex will has a better sketch of some of these things. One, the crucial thing for any success or failure of Bolsonaro, will he be able to get the economy to grow again? And secondly, to what degree can he be effective within Brazil's fragmented and broken uh, political system? And those two things will guide a lot of these uh, other scenarios. And with that, I will hand it to uh, our friend in Sao Paulo. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Um, I think, I mean, it's hard to talk about success because, I mean, fundamentally, the economic question, there doesn't seem to be many positive prognoses on the economic front. The bar- the markets will boom initially. There'll be a six-month honeymoon period. Uh, maybe investment will come in. The Brazilian situation will be seen as somewhat more stabilized, uh, at least on a political level, in the eyes of the markets. Um, but as I said, Bolsonaro will will face this uh, some difficult challenges in terms of how anti-popular he wants his economic rule to be. That said, he has said that he wants to reformulate the, the Brazilian state. So I think the, the kind of, I mean, it's, it's weird talking about it in terms of what's successful for Bolsonaro, because it does put, make, force me to think about it from, from the other side of, of, of the table. But, um, but let's try to do this. Let's try to work this, let's try to work this through. The successful case is that he's able, he doesn't have to rely on more explicitly, um, draconian military intervention the military starts to take over greater uh, secure a greater security role in the big cities that clampdown uh, has some success at least in the, in the kind of the, the centers of the big cities um while at the same time there are massacres happening at the periphery and in the countryside i think that sort of bloodbath is something that will happen i don't think there is any question about that desire to do that in part because this is carried out by non-state actors. This is carried out by, or parastate actors. So it's either militias or just farmers, for example, in the countryside who already do massacre uh, landless peasant movements, indigenous movements. And that's going to continue and accelerate because these guys will be completely let off the hook um, to do whatever they want. And also you'll probably see, like, for instance, in Brazil, there's already extreme amount of violence against uh, LGBTQ people, like uh trans women get murdered, gay men get murdered fairly regularly. And this will definitely increase now that people feel like they have a free hand in it. And uh, as opposed to like where it was previously just happening in the dark, people will be doing this in the open and claiming allegiance or fidelity to this, to Mito, the project of Bolsonaro. Yeah, right. And so in terms of how this looks going forward, he, you know, I think he manages to transform Brazilian society in terms of making it more militarized. He maybe is able to pass constitutional amendments without having to buy off too much of the Congress that he gets. You know, there's something about like 60% of Congress is is conservative. So would be in theory favorable to him. But a lot of them are just these old dogs who've been there for ages and who will need to be bought off. And Bolsonaro has said, no, I don't want to do the horse old forms of horse trading politics. One can't take that too seriously because um, the historical precedent is the military came in passed on a like anti-corruption platform in 1964, promising to do away with the corrupt political class. But in the end, they decided the best way to rule was with a corrupt political class empowered specifically by the military, uh, particularly in uh, the sort of rural areas of the country and the big cities. So the precedence is when given the choice between being able to get other measures such as neoliberalism or violent repression of the left, uh, the Bolsonaro tradition has opted for corruption 
as uh, something they find very easy to live with. And Bolsonaro himself comes from the party of the supreme creation, as I mentioned earlier, of the system, which is Paolo Malufi. Yeah, I think I totally agree with what Ben said just there. I think he will end up um, rather being swallowed up by the the existing institutions and or maybe using them, uh, using the old corrupt institutions as a form of rule. So like, let's and then so the best case scenario is he reaches 2022 and has been able to even um, ingratiate himself with sections of the population. That's the best case scenario. I don't actually believe in what I've just said very much. The worst case scenario for Bolsonaro is that uh, he is confounded by the fact that Congress is intractable. It's very difficult to rule that way. He doesn't have the experience. The people with him don't have the experience. Uh, he is unable to really choose when it comes to, for example, passing pension reform, as I mentioned. He encounters a lot of difficulty with that. Um, and that there is really mass resistance and that all those uh, the sections of the middle class who voted for him, uh, sections of the working class who voted for him just in the hope of change are brought out onto the streets and he alienates them very quickly. He tries to repress it forcibly. He tries to lock up even uh, leftist movement figures and that brings out greater resistance and that his whole rule is completely chaotic and that a year or two into it, the judiciary starts to to make a move against him and decides, no, enough is enough. And they use whatever dirt they already have on him. For example, the fake news WhatsApp scandal, which broke two weeks ago. Maybe they decide now this is the time to use this. We're going to get him impeached. And so that's the worst case scenario for Bolsonaro. I, I, I have uh, two other points to make about that. One is in that scenario, which is still extremely pessimistic, is that uh, Bolsonaro's vice president, Monroe, who is a uh, former general in the military and perhaps an even worse figure than a Bolsonaro in terms of his politics, uh, would then step in as president, which would be basically in many ways just a prelude to straight military rule. And then the second scenario, which is slightly different in terms of the resistance scenario to this, is essentially basically um, Bolsonaro's authoritarian uh, security crackdown and sort of expansion of paramilitary violence and parastate violence essentially gets a fight back from uh, Brazil's very powerful uh, criminal factions, a la Mexico or Colombia, as what you've seen. When you go to war with these guys, these guys have as big guns as you. They have bought off sections of the police, the military already, and they're very willing to get their hands dirty and professionalized. And you just see a complete open bloodbath in the streets. And that level of insecurity would be a prelude for like a state of emergency and the military stepping in. And uh, while I don't think that's quite likely, because I honestly think that Bolsonaro in many cases would actually be OK with or the military is OK with siding with particular criminal factions, um, that sort of Mexican confrontation and Colombian confrontation is, uh, in terms of bloodiness and path to military rule, probably the worst case scenario. So you both think there's a realistic prospect then of military rule within the next five years? Um Either soft in terms of them taking a guiding hand uh, and sort of creeping into the functioning of the state, or I think if basically there's a breakdown in the political system and Bolsonaro is not able to effectively govern, which you would see the move to impeach him and replace him with his uh, with a general, or in the case which uh, I hope really doesn't happen because this would just be absolutely terrible uh, in terms of the amount of lives lost. The I wouldn't discount the sort of Colombian Mexican scenario, because that level of violence and insecurity is really what the only way you would actually get the military on the streets like that. 
There's still sections of the top brass who are very resistant to a greater role in politics. They realize that their own, that, you know, they're, they're, it's the most popular kind of in state institution in Brazil. So they realize that if they get themselves involved in politics, they're going to lose that standing in Brazilian politics and it's all too much of a mess for them. So I think Ben is completely right that it would take that very drastic breakdown in public order for them to be stimulated into action. Okay, very quickly, um, could you just both say if you think some kind of um, military intervention in the Venezuelan crisis, whether it's multilateral, Brazilian-led, US-led, how far that might play into um, Bolsonaro's politics, perhaps as a way to avoid some of the domestic problems that he's going to have, as you've both outlined? Um, personally, in the Venezuelan scenario, it would need the United States to do some sort of action, which I, albeit I wouldn't rule it out, I still think it's as a level of threats. And at some levels, I actually think that in some respects, uh, again, I wouldn't discount a military intervention there uh, in completely, that it functions best to have Bolsa, the Venezuela as a sort of like failed state leftist nightmare up north as an example to uh, basically Brazil of what not to do and as the rhetorical play. I think that functions actually quite well for Bolsonaro. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't disagree with what Ben just said there. It would it would need the, the United States the United States to take a lead. The Colombians want to do it, um, but I think the way I would see it is, is that it would be perhaps a limited intervention to kind of stem the flow of refugees. That would be the the, the kind of explanation rather than an all out assault on the Venezuelan state. Look, I think at this moment uh, in. Brazil is in a situation in which a whole bunch of people will be in the firing line of a authoritarian state policy because they already are. Brazil is already a country which there's a profound level of violence at all levels. We've been alluding to it earlier. And it's going to be the people who have always traditionally been the victims of this violence, the poor in the northeast, the poor in the favelas, the indigenous people who will be like murdered for their land and by loggers and paramilitaries. It will be uh, black Brazilians, uh, women uh, who get out of line. It will be gay, uh, gay Brazilians. And uh, this will be given at least like some sort of congealing as a shared political project under Bolsonaro. So what can people realistically do? Uh, realistically, there's a few things. One, uh, which is one of the things was actually reasonably effective historically in the United States in terms of limiting some of the damage that the dictatorship did, which was basically to lobby elected officials in the United States to make sure that the human rights record of Brazil is being called out in Congress and funding is cut in certain programs. Even though I would not bet on this, considering who's in power uh, right now, that's one that's one thing you can do, which is basically make sure your political organization if or your elected officials are paying attention if they have powers over inter, in terms of international affairs. The second thing is to make sure that you're, uh, if you're a member of a union, you're a member of a political organization, that you're having some sort of awareness about Brazil and offering at least uh, symbolic solidarity. And when there are concrete calls for a more, uh, you know, type of monetary or other forms of solidarity, those are heeded. And I think most importantly, it's important to establish these networks internationally uh, in advance of what is likely to be a very dark period of history, because I think at, when we will see in terms of these scenarios going forward, what this will actually look like, what is actually needed will become more clear. And uh, I, I strongly urge uh, people, especially people who are members of uh, unions or political organizations, or in other cases, academic or journalistic associations, which also be very important because journalists on the firing line, uh, Bolsonaro supporters are openly threatening them, Bolsonaro is threatening them, 
the judiciary doesn't really seem to give a damn about them. The big media bosses seem to be ready to sacrifice journalists if they get in the way. Uh, they also will need solidarity, especially from these professional associations. And secondly, academics are already being threatened. Uh, the universities were raided in the build up to the election by the police to crack down on uh, propaganda, which is basically just anyone saying they're against fascism. Um, academics are likely to be fired and persecuted, so academic solidarity will be needed. And uh, these are just some of the things I can think of offhand. Here, here. Okay, thank you both very much. I think it'll be, um, it's been very useful to have some insights into what's happening and to provide some analytical frameworks to guide our understanding of what might happen over the next few years. Okay, and we are back next time with a talk uh, on kind of similar lines about Duterte's rule in the Philippines. Catch you then. Bye-bye.